And we're going to be spending most of our time in other scriptures, but I did want to at least begin by reading this one. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. It says, Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. We bless you. We pray that you would bless this word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after last week's sermon, I was asked that before I went on in our foundation series, if I would preach another sermon on civil government, but this time not on the limits of civil government, but on the qualifications of civil rulers. Now, you need to understand, I think there's a lot of legitimate debate on exactly how this would all play out especially in a pagan nation like ours that has abandoned, you know, operating our country according to the principles that we looked at uh, last week. Um, some uh, Christians automatically will vote for other Christians, failing to realize that there may be a pagan candidate that has a much more consistently Christian voting record than the Christian himself uh, has. On the other hand, Scripture seems to indicate that uh, uh, it is preferable to have Christians in government than to have those who do not fear God. But, as Tevier, and he used to always say in the fiddler on the roof, on the other hand, can a person really call himself a Christian ruler if he's a Christian in name, but all of his rule is according to pagan principles? Isn't that just syncretistic, uh, you know, Christianity and paganism mixed together? Is it really a Christian ruler? It seems that God does value principles of justice uh, that are uh, done by, uh, by pagan rulers. And so there's another on the hand, and that is that God sometimes prefers one pagan ruler to another pagan ruler and uh, even anoints such a pagan ruler for office. In the beginning of Deuteronomy, God protects pagan nations from Israelite conquest, and he says, uh, their cup of iniquity is not yet full. You cannot even step on their land. He protected them from that. On the other hand, we've got passages like the one that we just read that says that he who rules must rule in the fear of God, right? He, he must be just ruling in the, in the fear of God. Um, and I'm giving this back and forth, thinking out loud, just to show you that the issue of qualifications, you know, really cannot be simplistically answered. There's a lot that goes into it. We've got Presidents Clinton and Bush, who are both evangelical Christians. At least they claim to be. They profess to be evangelical Christians. And um, 
they have regular church attendance, but I would much rather have a non-Christian ruler like Thomas Jefferson who was ruling according to explicitly Christian principles that we looked at last week than to have a Christian who uh, was maybe president and who was violating the Bible and the Constitution left and right. You see what I'm, I'm getting at here? On the other hand, I would much rather have an explicitly Christian Thomas Jefferson than... Uh, you know, one who's in name a Christian, but in many ways was uh, a, a secular person. David is not perfectionistic in this passage. Verse 5 says, although my house is not so with God. Now, that's an admission. He does not live up to the ideal that he has just set down for how kings must rule. His house is not so. Uh, and when we are seeking rulers for office, I think we have to have an ideal to which we measure all of these uh, these uh, rulers, but at the same time, we need to recognize that uh, there are degrees of uh, preferability within government as well. And if there is a person who does fear God and who uh, holds to principles of limited government that we looked at last week, and yet you have disagreements with him in some areas, he still may be the candidate that you may want to uh, vote for. And I want you to turn with me to Exodus 18. If you don't have the outline, there is outlines in the back. Uh, table, and I'm not going to be going through there. I just want to flip through at least the first four passages, and I think that'll give you a sampling of uh, how these qualifications would work out in the life of a ruler. Exodus 18, and let's take a look at verse 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And I want you to notice the first qualification, ability. One of the real embarrassments that, uh, that I had was when there was a Christian man who was running for office, and he won, and uh, he was a godly man, he feared the Lord, he could not be bought, and all of those other things, but he was utterly unqualified to rule. He did not have the ability. He was perfectly qualified in terms of his character, his integrity, but this man did not know how to rule. And I think he reflected poorly on Christianity as a result. I don't think we should automatically say, okay, this guy's nice, he's a good Christian, let's vote for him and get him into office. He's got to have ability. And I find it interesting that this passage puts ability first, puts the fear of God second, and then puts those other qualifications, being a man of truth, hating covetousness, as third and fourth. Now, there may not be a significance to the order there, but I think that there is a significance. I think there's a certain logic. And if you really study out the qualifications and the rest of the passages, you're going to see there is a logic. If a person has no ability, what is he doing in the office in the first place? And so God puts down there uh, ability as being a very, very important uh, characteristic. Now, obviously, I want a statesman who is a Christian as an ideal, but sometimes there were men like Jehu, whom God himself anointed, who were not Christians, but compared to the wickedness and the tyranny of Jezebel, whom he authorized to kill, by the way, compared to her, he was much, much preferable because when you were looking at all of the qualifications of kings, he had far more of the qualifications than Jezebel had. You see what I'm getting at here? 
And I think especially in America, we need to be considering uh, how much of the qualifications does this candidate have? We're going to be looking for as high on the standard as we can get when we are voting. Now, some of you may disagree with me on this, and this next section is not essential to the sermon, but I'm really convinced this is biblical. In the primaries, you ought not to bypass a perfect candidate with the idea, well, he probably cannot win. And let me just give you one illustration. Years ago, uh, and I think it was in the early 90s, but I'm not, uh, I'm not positive. I just remember the situation. There was a, uh, a candidate, a Republican candidate, running in the primaries for congressman who was an ideal candidate. He was just perfect. And all the Christians I talked to said, yep, he's the one that I wish was in office, but I really don't think that he's electable. And so they sort of said, we've got to hold our nose and vote for the next one because we think that this person could win in the primaries. The other person could not. And so what they were doing is they were gauging their voting based upon prophesying the future rather than based upon the biblical qualifications that God had given, judging in terms of the word of God. Now, the irony of this is that um, the individual that they voted for, that they thought was much more electable, got far fewer votes than the person that they said was the ideal. In fact, I'm convinced if you added up the votes, if the Christians had put their votes behind this guy, I'm convinced he would have won not only the primaries, he probably would have won the, uh, the election as well. And the reason I bring this up is to point out that we do not know the future. And to prophesy concerning the future, I think sometimes can be a dangerous thing. Now, sometimes it's pretty obvious uh, what's going to happen, you know, in terms of an outcome. But Scripture says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. Well, let's apply it to this situation. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Which candidate is going to win in the future is a secret thing. We don't know what it is. And he's saying it's none of your business to predict the future. That's in God's hands. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things which are revealed, in other words, the qualifications that God has laid down in his word as to who should be in office, those belong to us and to our children that what? We may apply that word. We may do the word. And so I think it's much more important that we seek to vote according to the word of God and leave the results in God's hands. And um, uh, just a brief admonition. But anyway, what are the qualifications that we're going to be looking at? First of all, the ability to rule. Second, fear of God. Some people might say, really, is that a necessary qualification? Um, and I would say, yes, yeah, I think it is. Without the fear of God driving men, what's going to happen is they're going to be driven by the fear of man. And that's, I think, what politics is all about. People lick their finger and try to measure which way the wind is blowing. And they take the, you know, the path of least resistance. And what we need is men of integrity who will do the right thing no matter what winds are blowing. Why? Because they fear God more than they fear man. And the fear of God is something that was always held to be a very, very important part of, uh, of politics. If you read the writings of the men who signed the Constitution, for example, over and over, you're going to find these people saying that the fear of God is a qualification that is absolutely essential. Now, I've given some, uh, I've given some uh, quotes on the back of your worship notes that you can uh, take a look at that uh, might surprise you if the only information you had as to what was constitutional comes from the newspaper. 
And uh, uh, take a look at the second one on the, on the back there. It says, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christian rulers for their rulers. That's John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States uh, Supreme Court. Uh, take a look at um, uh, Pennsylvania's Constitution. Next one down. Each member of the legislature... Actually, of the legislature is inserted there. He's speaking about that, though. Each member of the legislature, before he takes his seat, shall make and subscribe the following declaration, viz. I do believe in one God, the creator and governor. Actually, that was a capitalized God. Sorry, my typing mistake. I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be given by divine inspiration. One of the things you found very common amongst uh, people who ran in state government as well as in federal government is they said if a person has no fear of God, if they don't believe in future rewards and punishments, they're probably uh, not going to be limited in terms of what they desire to do because they have nothing that will hold them in check if they are in power. Take a look at uh, constitutions of Tennessee and Mississippi, which are identical. 1817 says in the Constitution of Mississippi, no person who denies the being of God or a future state of rewards and punishments shall hold any office in the civil department of the, the state. They wanted people who feared God. One founding father said, nothing restrains men who have no fear of God. Daniel Webster, who was a congressman, was a senator, secretary of state for three presidents, said this, God intends you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. If the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupt. Noah Webster, uh, who was responsible, he, he wasn't on the um, Constitutional Committee, but he was uh, responsible for the wording of Article 1, uh, Section 8 of the Constitution, a well-known uh, person. He said, when you become entitled to exercise the right of voting for public officers... Let it be impressed on your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. The preservation of a Republican government depends on the faithful discharge of this duty. It is alleged by men of loose principles or defective views of the subject that religion and morality are not necessary or important qualifications for political stations. But the scriptures teach a different doctrine. They direct that rulers should be men, quote, who rule in the fear of God, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, Exodus 18:21. It is the neglect of this rule of conduct in our citizens that we must ascribe the multiplied frauds, breaches of trust, peculations and embezzlements of public property which astonish even ourselves, which tarnish the character of our country, which disgrace a republican government. So there was a, a signer of the Constitution who was upholding these, these principles here, Exodus 18, and saying, we've got to have that for all of our uh, governors. Now, I had to throw away a ton of quotes because I don't want to ever do a sermon as long as last time again. Four pages I, I threw away. But let me give you one more, and this is from, uh, from Madison, James Madison, whom people often appeal to as saying, hey, he was a promoter of a secular government. But he said in 1785, before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, and he's referring to a member of government, before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. So the fear of God. Next qualification, Exodus 18.21 says, men of truth, 
See, if men cannot be trusted to tell the truth, they cannot be trusted to govern. And some people think, you know, what, what's the big deal? So Nixon lied, you know, so, so uh, President Clinton lied. What's the big deal? Does their personal character really affect their public policy? And the scriptures say, yes, there must be integrity. If he cannot govern himself, how can he govern others? Hating covetousness, another characteristic. And I think, unfortunately, our, the way that we pay the salaries actually goes against that. It promotes people who have covetousness from getting in there because, uh, you know, do we really need to have lifetime pensions after a person has served one term? I, I don't think so. I think it runs completely contrary to this principle. Now, I want to move on uh, fairly quickly here. Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you would um, turn over there. And uh, take a look at verses 13 through 18. It says, Choose wise and understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes. I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, The thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Here are the cases between your brethren. And judge righteously between a man and his brother, the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. When we are voting for candidates, we need to make sure they have wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply the scriptures to the concrete details of life. But they also need to have knowledge. They need to have understanding. And if any of you children aspire to office and sometime in the future, you need to start studying right now. Study, study, study. What are the biblical theory of civics? What is the biblical practice of civics? Know it inside and out. Uh, one of the qualifications uh, for, for rulers. Impartiality, righteous judgment. By the way, impartiality means you make judgment even if your friends are opposed to it. You make just judgment the righteous judgment, even if somebody that's got tremendous political clout that might get you out of office is opposed to your decision. Decisions need to be based on what is right, not what is expedient. And then once again, he lists the fear of God. Now, I'm going to spend more time on the next two passages. If you turn to Deuteronomy 17, <clears throat> this is the classic passage dealing with the responsibilities as well as the characteristics of uh, godly rulers. Deuteronomy 17 and let's begin reading at verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So I want you to notice first that God's choice of king needs to be the criteria for our choice of king. Now, how do we know his choice? It is not simply by looking at providence. Say, okay, I'll submit to whatever God's providence is. No, they were supposed to choose the one that God would choose, and providence always happens. It's not God's decretive will, it's his prescriptive will, what God has laid down in the scriptures as being the candidate that God himself would have put into the government. He says, that's the one that you need to choose as king. Going on, one from among your brethren, so he needs to be a Christian, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So he has to be a brother. He has to be a citizen. And back in those days, they were supposed to be one and the same, but didn't always work out. Verse 16 says, But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. 
For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Now, he's talking here about uh, this person needs to make sure he is not imperialistic. He's not somebody that's after power and extension of, uh, of the kingdom, interventionism, uh, as it were. Horses were used for primarily not for de- defense, but for taking over other countries because uh, of the way in which they could, uh, they could travel uh, so swiftly. And while Israel was not isolationist in its policies, it was definitely not interventionist. And most of the founding fathers did not agree with George Washington on his total isolationist stance, but all of them, I think, agreed, and I may be mistaken because I've not read absolutely all of them on that subject, but they seem to agree that we should not be interventionist, meddling in other countries' affairs. Now, that was not true later on. Our country began to be more and more interventionist in uh, Latin America and Canada and in other places as well. But uh, imperialism, not a good idea. Verse 17, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Okay, so here are two qualifications that show if he's got self-control and if he's got contentment. Uh, Is he a womanizer? And is he greedy? Those are the two uh, characteristics there. And people might wonder again, you know, why would such personal characteristics have anything whatsoever to do with government? Well, all you have to do is think about how spies work. Spies appeal to exactly these two vices to undermine a country, and they have undermined many powerful people in the past using sex and money. Of course, this is an important principle. Uh, It has been something that has undermined many countries, including Solomon. He was adulterated, uh, who was subverted by his wives. Uh, and, and just in terms of this debate, let me give you an interesting quote from Samuel Adams, who was one of the foremost uh, founding fathers. Sam Adams said, He who is void of virtuous attachments in private life is, or very soon will be, void of all regard of his country. Private and public vices are in reality connected. Nothing is more essential than that all persons employed in places of power and trust be men of unexceptionable characters. The public cannot be too curious concerning the private characters of public men. Wow, <laughs> what, what a quote. Uh, people were upset, you know, when uh, Gary Hart was criticized for his adultery. And even in the Democratic Party, there were people who criticized him on that. And they were saying, what's the big deal? I mean, just keep his private life out of this. He's a great governor. And they do the same thing, you know, with uh, President Clinton. They say, just keep his morals out of it. All he is is a governor, and the scripture indicates no. Uh, He must be godly in his self-government, or there will not be godly civil government. Anyway, moving on to verse 18. It says, Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn. Well, we'll just stop there. This is something that just give the ACLU fits. Uh, his first requirement before he could even begin ruling is he had to write out all the first five books of the Bible, the whole Pentateuch, write it out by hand. And then after that, he had to read the Bible every day of his life. He had to study it. He had to be totally familiar with the Word of God. And I think that's something that would um, be very important for uh, any people that go into office. There are many Christians that don't read the, the Bible. They don't know the Old Testament law. And at least for the Christian guys, we can say, 
hey, Joe Blow, uh, notice that you're getting into office. Here's a qualification <laughs> the scripture lays down. You need to be familiar with the law of God. And I'm giving you a gift. It's uh, uh, Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law or, you know, some other book. And I uh, hope you enjoy uh, your reading. But at least Christians ought to be motivated to do that, shouldn't they? And so here's a qualification. We've got to be familiar uh, with the Bible. Now, there's something that flows from that understanding of the Bible. And I started to read it. It says, it shall be with him. This is verse 19. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So there's that attribute of fear, fear of God again, that is so important. You're going to find it all throughout the scriptures and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And so holiness of life was also something that was uh, very important uh, to them as well. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. Now, why is humility is such an important characteristic for a ruler you'd think you know the perfect person for the spot you know is a guy who thinks so highly of himself that uh you know that he's uh, just you know arrogant in regular life but as a ruler he'd be he'd be great that's the way many people think but the scripture says that pride is a danger to the country why because god resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble james right resists the proud gives grace to the humble which means that pride in a ruler endangers the country's safety just as much now as it did under Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the thing that God said he hated about Nebuchadnezzar's rule the most was that he was such a prideful man, and God eventually humbled him, converted him, and restored him. But that was the thing that got him out of office. And so, yes, uh, a person who is prideful, boy, that's a danger sign. That's a danger signal big time because Satan can get at him any way he wants when there's pride in his life. He can... He can make him fall. And I tell you, these rulers are under incredible attack in Washington, D.C. We need to be praying for them, praying that they have humility, praying that they have some of these other attributes. Okay, continuing on in verse 20. That he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. That he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. This speaks of limited civil government. In other words... The ruler does not have the discretion to go beyond what is written in the word of God. The word rules over kings. Now, when, you, when it comes to confirmation of judges, no judge should ever be confirmed who does not hold to strict constructionism because otherwise there are absolutely no limits to what he can do. He does anything he pleases until he gets impeached. But how many people, how many judges ever get impeached? And so uh, there should be no confirmation of anybody that does not hold a strict constructionism. Strict constructionism says, I will only judge based on the original intent of the Constitution. Now, we saw last week that the Constitution mandates common law, and that common law is simply the application of biblical law, as faulty as the application may be, the application of the biblical law over a thousand years of of history in, in, in English tradition. And so really, uh, when a person is holding to strict constructionism, he is saying, I'm not going to go to the right hand or the left hand of the Constitution. He's also saying, I'm not going to go to the right hand or the left hand of biblical law. So he's saying, we hold to, to limited civil government. We're not tyrants. We're not people who think we have all the power in the world. And so you get statements from signers of our Constitution, such as the following. Pinckney, who spoke at the convention more than any other person, 
said blasphemy against the Almighty is denying his being or providence or uttering contumelious reproaches on our Savior Christ. It is punished at common law by fine and imprisonment for Christianity as part of the laws of the land. But that means we have limited government. And that's exactly what Pinckney went on to say. He said the great art of government is not to govern too much. So God's word is the standard and it's the only standard that can really keep people having limited government. Now, if you look at the back of your worship notes, let me read you the bottom two quotes. First one from the Supreme Court of Southern uh, South Carolina, 1846. In the courts over which we preside, we daily acknowledge Christianity as the most solemn part of our administration. Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law. That was 1846. You know, there's no weaseling around this that, oh, yeah, it took a few years, you know, after the Constitution was made before the states got it right. No, you had these things going way into the 1800s. Next one is from United States Congress, uh, 1854. Christianity must be considered as the foundation on which the whole structure rests. There can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. There is a great and very prevalent error on this subject. No kidding. Uh, there is a great and very prevalent error on this subject in the opinion that those who organized this government did not legislate on religion. They didn't want them legislating a particular denomination, but uh, they definitely did legislate uh, in terms of Christianity because common law was part and parcel of the laws of our nation. Now, there are people who um, uh, have over, even in my lifetime, uh, ruled in terms of not going to the left hand or the right hand of God's law. And they've been very bold about it. In fact, I voted for one in Georgia, and he was in, he was in Congress for quite some time. I can tell you about that sometime. But that's what we need to be looking for. That's the ideal that, we, that we're pushing forward in our nation. Now, Deuteronomy 17 ends by saying, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And so he's basically saying God backs up his qualifications with sanctions. He enforces uh, his law. John Witherspoon, who signed the Declaration of Independence, said, those therefore who pay no regard to religion and sobriety and the persons whom they send to the legislature of any state are guilty of the greatest absurdity and will soon pay dear for their folly. Now, of course, our founding fathers recognized the government's only going to be as good as its citizens, and if its citizens begin to fall away from the Lord, it's going to be all over for, uh, for our government. In 1798, John Adams said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. And so that's why we're saying, as Christians, we've got to look at the qualifications. What does God say we should vote for? And then we, we push for the advancement of his qualifications within society. And I think we need to be propagating this amongst other questions. Okay, one more passage, and we'll end with that. It's 2 Samuel 23, the passage that I began with. And like I say, there's a lot of other passages dealing with qualifications, but I just wanted to have you some, uh, get a few samples of uh, how, how God approaches this, and I thought the first four were just fine. Okay, verse 1. Now, these are the last words of God. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. He is right off the bat acknowledging the fact that God is his sovereign. God was the one who raised him up. God is the one who can cast him down. God is the one to whom he is accountable 
uh, too. And then he goes on, he says, it's not enough to acknowledge God. We've got to actually listen to his word. Otherwise, it's a mere formality. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, etc., etc. Now, of course, David was inspired and he wrote his, his words in the Bible. But many other scriptures indicate it's not just David who had to listen to God. Every ruler needed to listen to God. And when we read the Bible now, we are listening to God every bit as much as David was when he received his re revelation. Do not disparage this and say, oh, I want God to talk directly to me. You know, I don't want to have to read the Bible. No, God's given the Bible. And until we take it seriously, uh, we, we cannot say that we are listening to God at all. Now, the next qualification is that David sees God as being the only security for the nation, the only rock upon which that nation could rest. And you know what? Even unorthodox men like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson said that uh, God was the only security for this nation. That's as secular as you could get. They did not like, even Thomas Jefferson, you know, they did not like people like Paine. Thomas Paine, was it? Uh, they... Whether they were sincere or were not sincere, they acknowledged that uh, God is the only security for the nation. And so David in verse 3 says, the rock of Israel spoke to me. The, the solidness of a rock was a symbol for the fact that it stands for security. It stands for uh, stability. And we are a proud nation when we think that we can function without God. And that's exactly where we're at. We have cast God out of the political arena, out of the courts. And... Uh, and, and God could very easily uh, judge us and cast us down. And so I appreciate the fact that our current president, as illiterate as he is in the scriptures and as many unconstitutional things as he has been doing, I appreciate the fact that he has been praying every day for God's wisdom. He really does want to, his peers, he wants to submit himself to the word of God. And he acknowledges our only security as if God's blessing is upon us. And I, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, in him. Let me give you um, a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Here's our secularist, okay? This is, this is our secularist uh, speaking in Congress. He says, we have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Pretty good for a secularist. <laughs> okay, now David goes on to say in verse 3, he who rules over men must be just. Must be just. Augustine said, without justice, what are states but great bands of robbers? And I think that is exactly right. We ought not to put politicians up on a pedestal and say they can do no wrong. You know, whatever they say is something. No. He says, what are, without justice, what are states but great bands of robbers? Justice must take precedence over national security. Justice must take precedence over political expediency. Okay, we've already seen the next qualification in verse 3, ruling in the fear of God, but it, it comes up all of the time. And we need to pray that God would put more and more people into Washington, D.C., into Lincoln, Nebraska, into City Hall who have the fear of God. Really, really essential. Okay, verse 4 gives some descriptions that uh, Christ alone... Uh, probably could fulfill. He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining, 
after rain. But then comes a hint that David recognizes that he does not live up to the standards that God has given to him in his word. And if you've got an NIV or a New American Standard uh, Bible, you're not going to see this because they translate that uh, uh, they translate that differently. And actually, they're not following closely the Hebrew, but many people have said this is puzzling. It seems like the opposite of what it should say. But here's how the NASB has it. Truly, has not my house been so with God? Now, that's the opposite reading of what I've given, right? It's, it's affirming David is good. That's why this covenant has been, has been made with, with him. But that is the exact opposite of what David said about himself in 2 Samuel 7. He acknowledged that his house had been faithless to God, even though he was pursuing after the Lord. And the Lord himself said that I will chasten your house with the rod of men. Uh, And uh, he, he talked about the mercies that the Lord brings to David and to David's house when there is when there is repentance. And so David is not saying that he was blessed because he was so good. That's the implication of the NIV and New American Standard. He's saying the opposite. He is saying God has blessed him, made a covenant with him, despite the fact that he has loused up several times. Let me read you three translations to this effect. Here is one. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Here's another. Verily my house is not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Here's a paraphrase. What worth has my kindred in God's sight that he should make an everlasting covenant with me? Now, what difference does it make how we translate that? I say it makes a huge difference, and I think that the way that the New King James translates it uh, very literally there, it brings tremendous comfort during a time that we're going through right now when there is so much corruption, so many problems as we are praying uh, for our government. It is mercy, not what we deserve that is given. God's mercy rests upon kings and nations who submit themselves to his rule. Now, if they don't submit, there is no mercy. If they're not calling out to him for, in repentance, there is no mercy. But it's mercy, not what we deserve. We have sex scandals in Washington, but so did David. We have uh, Chappaquiddicks, uh, you know, uh, in Washington, but so did David. We have lies and deceit in Washington, but so did David. We've got government oppression, abuse of spending, overtaxation, but so did Solomon, David's son. God recognizes even in governments, there is not always going to be perfection. And the only way that he can bless any government is as he blesses that government through Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so always it is tied in with grace. Don't think that government is apart from God's grace. God's grace is going to conquer governments and cause them to reign in the fear of him. And so it's one thing to say that these are qualifications toward which we aspire, and it's quite another thing to say that no ruler may rule unless he has every one of these completely. Otherwise, Jesus would be the only one ruling, right? Uh, What we're looking for in candidates is evidence that there is a desire, there is an aspiration toward this kind of governing. Now, David's statement should not be taken as a justification for rebellion because the next words indicate you're either for Christ or you're against Christ. Certainly, he is a merciful king. He's blessed our nation richly despite our repeated sins against him. But um, there comes a time when he says, enough is enough. And I want you to look at verses 6 through 7. But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away. When people persevere in rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 2 says, eventually he's going to get ticked off. He's going to get angry and he's going to destroy them with his rod of iron. Okay, that's judgment, casting away. 
He's going to remove the tyranny. David says, but the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns cast away because they cannot be taken with hands. He's using an illustration. You're trying to get rid of all of these thorns and they keep pricking you. So you get these rods and the spears and stuff and you're just forking them over to the fire. And uh, he says, you're not going to be able to just, they're not going to step down on their own. You know, tyrants will want to continue to be tyrants. And so sometimes there is a need for resistance to tyranny. And so he says, but the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. I found it interesting when I was doing some research for the last sermon uh, that I, I ran across um, some of the, the debates on what the seal of the United States of America should be. And there was the turkey, and there was a number of different things. And uh, Benjamin Franklin, he submitted a number of uh, different proposals. And here was one proposal that he put up that I thought was pretty cool. Moses lifting up his wand and dividing the Red Sea, and Pharaoh in his chariot overwhelmed with the waters, with this motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. <laughs> Imagine that coming from Benjamin Franklin's uh, mouth. You know, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. See, he was a lapsed Presbyterian. Uh, he had fallen away. He no longer attended church, didn't believe in predestination, any of that kind of stuff. But he couldn't get rid of all of the Presbyterianism in his blood, you know. And out of this comes, he's boldly saying, yeah, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Okay. Now, those are the two options. Judgment to tyrants, mercy to sinful kings who repent, who kiss the son, and who submit to him. And verse 5 again mentions that mercy. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? I, I, originally, I had a real long sermon. I had to trim out a pile. But if I had the time, you can write down in your notes to check out 2 Samuel chapter 7 and then look at how that chapter is interpreted in Isaiah 55, in Hebrews chapter 1, and in Acts chapter 15. And you'll see something very surprising. You'll see that the Davidic covenant is forever. The Davidic covenant is something that is pointing forward to the fact that Jesus Christ is going to rule not only over the church, Acts 15, but also over governments, Isaiah 55, over all the kings of the earth, they're going to be submitting to him. And so it's a marvelous covenant, and it's indicating that through Christ, there's going to be a gradual increase over time of righteousness, a gradual pressing forward of the qualifications for rule. And so David even here uh, hints at that when he says, and verse 5, this is all my salvation, all my desire. Will he not make it increase? It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that we press towards, but it comes through grace. It comes through salvation. We cannot overnight get a government who's going to rule righteously unless we have a nation that is full of people who are Christians. We've got to have uh, evangelism, people transformed by God's grace, educated in what it means to live all their life under the crown rights of King Jesus. And as the citizens begin to think correctly and they begin to vote for the right people, and they begin to run for office, then we're gradually going to begin to see transformation uh, uh, happening in, in government itself. <clears throat> now, in summary, I think we can say that unless we aim at the bullseye, we're not even going to hit the target. In fact, we're not going to even know what we're shooting for. That's the reason for these qualifications. We've got to hit at the, we've got to aim at the bullseye. 
But don't get discouraged when you're aiming at the bullseye and all you hit is the very edge of the target. I mean, be happy you've even hit the target, right? But we've got to be aiming in a, in a right direction. So the point is, we've got to know what the qualifications are toward which we are aiming. And, uh, you know, on, on these qualifications, I think every one of us, as we look through these, we'd say, yeah, if Jesus was running for uh, office, yeah, we'd all be in 100% agreement. He fits all of the qualifications. But when it comes to voting for lesser men than the Lord Jesus Christ, there might be differences of opinion. Because some people might emphasize some qualifications, others might emphasize other qualifications. And so we need to have charity toward one another. If somebody votes differently than you're going to vote, you know, at the next elections. We do have, need to have charity because the application of these uh, may come out a little bit different in our minds because we have different backgrounds, different understandings. But let's be all on the same page when it comes to what those qualifications are and let's make sure that our voting is governed by the Scriptures and by the Scriptures alone. Let me end by finishing the quote from Noah Webster that I started with earlier. And again, he was uh, intimately uh, acquainted with the discussions that went on in this constitutional uh, convention, uh, even though he was not on it himself. But he says, when you become entitled to exercise the right of voting for public officers, let it be impressed on your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. The preservation of a Republican government depends on the faithful discharge of this duty. Now, now I want you to listen in the next sentence. What he describes will happen if we fail to vote according to biblical qualifications. And he just had incredible insight when he was describing this. He goes on, he says, If the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupted. Laws will be made, not for the public good, so much as for the selfish or... If a Republican government fails to secure public prosperity and happiness, it must be because the citizens neglect the divine commands and elect bad men to make and administer laws. And all I can say is, I agree. I agree. We have seen the results of voting by pragmatism. Let's see what can happen. As we vote according to biblical principle, we have other people voting according to biblical principle, the qualifications laid down in his word. May he receive all of the honor and the glory as his kingdom grows. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you many ways feeling helpless, and yet that's a good uh, place for us to be in. As we look around us, Father, we know that it is not by might nor by our arm of strength that anything is going to be able to be accomplished of lasting significance, but it's by your spirit. It's by uh, your uh, repentance being granted to the Gentiles. It's by your grace transforming people's hearts from the inside out. It's by the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would start with us, that you would make us good voters, that you would make us good judges of character, help us to place men into office who will advance your cause rather than just their own agendas. Uh, help us to not be concerned just about winning elections, but help us to be concerned about pleasing you in our duties as voters. Uh, help us to discharge our duties as voters by looking to your word, Father. And I thank you for having given us such clear direction in terms of these qualifications. I pray, Father, that from beginning to end in this next election cycle, 
uh, you would uh, begin stirring the hearts of believers all over this nation to not only see, Father, what the, what, what the, um, uh, the, the, the uh, root issues are and what uh, the stakes are that are involved in this uh, huge culture war, but, Father, to realize that there is no other standard than your standard that you have given in the Word. I pray that you would send revival even in the civic sphere and that you would cause any Christians who are ruling in office to begin to look to your word and to follow it. Father, start with us with revival, but Father, move it uh, anywhere that you please and cause, I pray, this nation to once again fall on its knees before you and to not just in word and on our money, but in reality to be one nation under God. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.